The Tom Woods Show, episode 1266. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, this episode is brought to you by Policy Genius. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, there's no reason to put it off any longer. Go to policygenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. It's that easy. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to be joined once again by Jim Epstein, who is managing editor of Reason TV and the Reason podcast. And he's just put out a really superb piece of journalism. And I think it's important, particularly given that libertarians are often given to abstract theorizing. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think we connect with people more effectively when we focus on particular case studies and real flesh and blood human beings. And that's what Jim's done here in talking about the consequences of the coming $15 minimum wage for New York. And in particular, he focuses in this piece on car washes and what it's meant for a lot of people and the kinds of consequences. We're supposed to call them unintended consequences. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they didn't realize that it would have these effects on people. But it has real and clear and lasting and uh, very damaging effects on very real people. And this is very skillfully shown in this video. So definitely you'll want to watch it. It's at tomwoods.com slash 1266. And I thought it would make a good topic of conversation. Jim, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Thrilled to be back on. And, you know, my kids have been saying to me for months that nobody wants to hear me talk about car washes. So thank you for proving them wrong. Oh, they are. I'm on the Tom Woods show. Yeah, Yeah. you're darn right. Yeah, darn right. They are so wrong. I'm sure they're wonderful kids. But on this, we have refuted them because I am really, really interested in what you've been doing on this, your most recent video. It's so well done. It's just devastatingly well done. So let's start uh, a little bit earlier. Let's go back a few years. You were telling me in an email briefing that it was in 2015 that you first became interested in labor reporting because the New York Times had done a series on exploitation at nail salons. And uh, you say that this piece was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, made a big splash. And the gist of it was you can have something decadent for a cheap price only by somebody being exploited. And so you responded to this. Uh, You went in and tried to give another side of the story. So what was their story? What was your story? Yeah, this was, it was a series called Unvarnished that ran in the New York Times in 2015. And it not only was a Pulitzer finalist, it made a huge splash, but it actually led to policy change. Uh, Governor Cuomo reacted by creating a labor task force and starting to really crack down on New York nail salons. So it had amazing impact. And I was getting interested in the story. And, you know, really sort of the big picture was that I realized that most people writing about these issues, most reporters were coming at it with this assumption, this almost cartoonish world of evil bosses and exploited workers that they were fitting the facts into over and over again. And actually, as you you just alluded to, the reporter of that nail salon piece, whose name is Sarah Maslinier, had been interviewed about it. And I think the interviewer had asked her, what's the big takeaway? What is the greatest lesson from your series? And her quote was, there's no such thing as a cheap luxury. The only way you can have something decadent for a cheap price is by someone being exploited. 
And a liberal arts education these days might lead people to come away with that impression. But anyone who's actually run a successful business knows that the most important thing is keeping your employees, your good employees happy because good people are very hard to find and they are the cornerstone of any successful business. So at a car wash, you know, a person who who gets there on time every morning and is reliable and has too much integrity to let a car pull out of the wash with a streak on the side. That is what a good business is built on. So actually, the power dynamic often goes the other way. And the other thing is, I mean, it's not to say that there are not abusive bosses and bad situations, as there are in any workplace at any level occasionally. But the way to deal with that is to give people more choices. You lower barriers to entry. You make business more competitive so that those workers have other work options. And the bad operators, people that mistreat their employees, are going to go out of business. And of course, the reaction, the government's approach to dealing with these issues and its reaction is really just to raise barriers to entry through regulation and to make the exact problem worse. It's really interesting to see that the person who at that time was the New York Times public editor, Margaret Sullivan, felt compelled to address your criticisms of their series. And she wrote in the Times, these are her words, that the series went too far in generalizing about an entire industry. Its findings and the language used to express them should have been dialed back in some instances substantially. That's got to be satisfying. You know, it was, in a sense, it was sort of an easy target because I knew that the reporter had gone about her reporting, making the facts conform to her preconceived narrative. So once I started calling all the people that she had talked to and actually looking at all the evidence, I found that almost everything was wrong. Almost everyone had said they were misquoted. It was completely misconstrued. And actually, probably the biggest thing, and this is the great lie in labor reporting, is that labor activists are always saying, oh, well, they're paying slave wages. You know, they're making $4 a day. And actually what goes on is most of low-wage workers are paid in cash and they're paid off the books. So, and they actually prefer it that way for a variety of reasons, one of which is that uh, it helps them stay eligible for food stamps and other programs. So it's great to have your money now and to be paid off the books. But then when enterprising journalists or labor inspectors show up, the books are a mess. And you can pretty much allege anything, really. And then, you know, the fines really mount up. So that was sort of the main error that this reporter made. And there's another preconceived notion that I came across when working on that story, which is that there's this patronizing assumption at the root of all this labor reporting. I remember I, I called a, an attorney who was representing a nail salon manicurist who had claimed that she was experiencing a grinding existence, making $3 a day, and she'd stayed at this same job for four years. Now, I, I visited that nail salon. I, I got their prices. I tried to figure out how could she make $3 a day? And the only way would have been if she'd been maybe servicing one client a week, sitting around all day. And it just, it just didn't add up. And I said to the, the attorney, you know, this doesn't sound like a grinding existence. And why didn't she look for a nail salon with more foot traffic? And his response, I remember, was like, he said very explicitly, well, these people are very unsophisticated and they're really incapable of acting in their own best interest. And so that is the other assumption that people make, which is that low-wage workers are unsophisticated. And so we need to come in and help them because we know better the, the set of trade-offs that they face, um, which, of course, is completely wrong. These people are savvy and they know what's in their own best interest. 
And that actually reminds me of one of the workers in the video we're eventually going to get to who was talking about union representation. And he's saying, in effect, what do I need this for? I don't have any problems here. And if I want to work somewhere else, I'll just go work somewhere else. I mean, it was just very simple, kind of man-on-the-street, common-sense answer. Now, you write, while reporting that story, I realized that labor enforcement in New York is a political racket. What do you mean by that? So the other thing, and this is something that people that study the impact of the minimum wage often miss. And I'm very heavily focused on New York because I want to do detailed reporting. In New York City, at least, enforcement is incredibly weak. So, you know, the minimum wage has an impact because there are many employers who who abide by it and it is bringing big changes. But there are big parts of the industry, often in immigrant neighborhoods, immigrant-owned businesses, where they pay cash and they don't abide by it at all. And they do that because they can completely get away with it. The Federal Department of Labor actually cannot enforce the $15 minimum wage because it's state law. They can only enforce the federal minimum wage, which is less than half of that. The State Department of Labor enforces it, and it is a complete backwater. I think there's maybe 100 inspectors when they last looked at this statewide. They really never show up. So in one sense, this is kind of a blessing because it means that all of these doomed scenarios probably won't come true and these crazy laws won't lead to mass unemployment. Of course, the leftists who claim that, you know, the minimum wage has no impact are going to feel think they're vindicated because of this. However, the way it actually works is that it creates a weapon for politicians. So they can, when they want, come down on a business or an operator by directing the Department of Labor to go after them. So that sort of discretionary aspect of it is sort of one of the real scandals here. So it happened with the nail salons, right? So this error-riddled series made a big splash. And then I think within the week, Governor Cuomo had created a task force and the task force started showing up at all these mom and pop immigrant owned nail salons, which were paying off the books. Some of them didn't know all the very complex labor laws in New York. They started getting tens of thousands of dollars in fines. The Chinese owners in particular actually had a WeChat group where they would alert each other to when the inspectors were coming. So they actually got pretty savvy and then they would, you know, immediately close shop, etc. But that's a perfect example of how this discretionary aspect really gives politicians a lot of power. Right, right, right. So in other words, it's a situation where it's an unstated piece of knowledge that both sides have that the enforcement of this is spotty. You know it and we know it. But what you equally know is that therefore, as you put it, we can weaponize these labor regulations anytime we want to, and we can weaponize them and use them against groups that have very little political clout, like Chinese and Korean business owners. So yeah, as you say, it's good that they're not able to enforce it completely because that blunts some of the negative consequences. But on the other hand, it means they can really target it. It can, it becomes like a Kafka novel and it's just, anyway. So, all right. So let's talk now about the car wash issue, because then you moved into the issue of car washes. We did some work on this a couple of years ago that you've just recently followed up on to look at the consequences of the, I guess, $15 minimum wage. And I, I spend a lot of time in New York, but I try to avoid New York politics. How long has there been a $15 minimum wage in New York? 
Well, it's actually, there is not one yet. It's it's oh, coming in. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it takes full effect. It's a gradual thing. Right. Um, it's almost there. It takes full effect in January of 2019. Uh, but of course, oh, it's coming. it has been going up every year. So, and of course, the owners are preparing for it. The other thing that's been going on is that the $15 minimum wage is one thing that lessens its impact is that certain industries, restaurants included, can take what's called a tip credit, which means that if you're employed, employees are making a certain amount of tips per hour, then you can pay less than the minimum wage. You can get credited for a portion of the tips. So that has always been a factor. A lot of owners don't even bother, particularly restaurants, because it's very complicated when tips apply or when they don't. So you you really leave yourself open because inspectors could basically show up at any restaurant and find violations because it's impossible to abide by all of them perfectly. However, that's a factor. But now there's a big movement in New York to eliminate the tip credit. So that won't eat. So that mm. again amounts to a really big increase. So the $15 minimum wage has been coming for a long time. And car wash owners have been preparing for it. And of course, the main thing that I found is they're automating and they're closing down. And these are the car wash owners that really take the, they've either been targeted, they've had Department of Labor investigations, they have assets that they need to protect. They're going to do whatever they can to abide by the law. That's not the entire industry. But so this is what the impact has been. And one thing that I found so interesting about New York is that this move towards automation in car washes um, really got going in the 70s when a company called Sherman came out with much better equipment. And then it accelerated further in the early aughts. I think it was about 2001 when an operator in Baton Rouge came up with a model where you vacuum your own car um, and you just go through a tunnel. So you really need almost no workers on site. And this was a big innovation that swept the country. However, New York has never been part of this. In fact, what was happening in New York in the 80s were that car washes were actually de-automating. They were ripping out their machines. And so there's always there's this idea somehow that automation is like a march forward, but it's not. In the 80s, car wash operators found that New York customers, they love the hand wash. They loved when guys, you know, take lots of care with their beautiful cars and do detailing work. You know, they worry that machines are going to scratch their cars. And there was a lot of profit to be made. There was also a huge immigrant population that was coming in, many of them illegal. So there was a workforce, unlike in many other, that, that was also true in Southern California, not true in most parts of the country. So now, what's happening now with the $15 minimum is we're reversing sort of the de-automation of the 80s. And of course, what does it mean? Fewer jobs. Now, that that really is interesting because there are cases, of course, where, as you say, people prefer things not to be automated. But also, there are times when people will say, uh, well, they'll look at increased uh, automation, they'll think that maybe this is a good thing, that it, it leads to more efficiency. But it's if it's artificially chosen and the two options of labor-intensive versus labor-unintensive are not given a level playing field, you're not going to have the, the optimal result. And this seems to be a case of that. So that's one thing people could have predicted, that they would automate because that's what a lot of industries do when faced with increased labor costs. Yeah, I mean, automation is, a, in many cases, it is a downgrade in services at New York car washes, which they can now kind of get away with because of the $15 minimum. And 
you know, the optimal situation is what two parties agree on. You know, customers and car wash owners have a certain arrangement. And if the customers prefer hand washes, that's the optimal situation. You know, I think you're right. We, we always encounter this bias that somehow machines replacing men is just the march of progress. Not necessarily. It's what consumers want. Or I've even heard it said that, well, one benefit of crime in the U.S. is that Americans are leading the world in crime prevention technology. Well, okay, but I would rather just have no crime and no, you know, like this seems kind of a convoluted way to look at it. But yeah. what, what you're seeing now, though, in the current video is stuff that wouldn't be as easy to anticipate, namely the black market that's developing and also the way that the $15 minimum wage benefits certain types of providers and is a problem for other types of providers. So can you sort all that out? As I said earlier, enforcement is weak. You know, so the industry is pretty much divided. So a big portion of the industry doesn't care what the minimum wage is. They're continuing to pay cash and they're the black market operators. There's also a segment that I really focused on in the video of those illegal car washes where they're actually just, they're guys that are setting up vans on the street and they're very, uh, in, they have generators on the street and, and handheld sprayers. Um, it's sort of ingenious how they're doing it. And it, this is a growing phenomenon. So customers still prefer hand washes. So you have a sort of this growing uh, black market. So of course, as you know, when you overregulate something, and that's what the $15 minimum wage amounts to, what you do is you breed black markets because, particularly when enforcement is weak, because this is what customers want and you have able-bodied men who want to do this work. So really, again, it's another example of how the interventions that the labor activists are pushing lead to the exact opposite consequences. So instead, you have a larger black market, which is all cash, and there's no workman's comp, there's no insurance if somebody's injured, you know, there's no, it's just completely unregulated. So that's happening. And then you have the established car wash workers, some of whom recognize that the $15 minimum wage has some benefits for them because it, in order to now stay open, because you really can't affordably wash a car and do a hand wash at $15 an hour. You're, you you, your customers won't pay that much. They've realized to stay in business, the ones that want to stay in business, they have to install all sorts of new machinery. That's costly, it's difficult, and it raises the barriers to entry in the industry. So some of them have actually reflected and said, you know, this is a good thing because it means that a guy can't open a hand wash on the corner and steal my customers. I can go fully automated. And so many of them want to do that because they think that dealing with labor and workers is headaches. Consumers, it benefits consumers, but it doesn't really benefit them. They'd much rather just have a machine just working around the clock and never complaining. So of course, though, since there are still the illegal hand washes, these car wash owners are now sort of banded together with the union and the labor activists to advocate for shutting them down. We need to, we need enforcement. We need to, you know, so it's like you would expect that all car wash owners would be against all regulation, but that's not the case in the same way that it was true, you know, with uh, railroads during the progressive era, why? because it, the regulations actually protect them from the guy opening up down the block. Yeah, you've actually got somebody on camera saying thank you for the $15 minimum wage. And that's not somebody who's earning the $15 minimum wage. 
No, he's a, yeah, he's, that's, that's Jack Belinsky, who's a Russian immigrant, very libertarian guy, very smart, and he's an operator of a car wash in Queens, which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, I don't name the car wash in the video. Uh, there's a few of them which I couldn't name. They allowed me in, but they didn't want their name in the story. And that's because, again, these guys are afraid of targeted enforcement. I don't know if it's true. I haven't substantiated these claims, but there are many car wash owners who say that when they've spoken out, when they make political enemies. A month later, the Department of Labor shows up. Folks, just a second for a quick reminder from your friendly host here that life insurance is not something other people have. It's something you need to have. And one-third of people don't have it. Not helping matters is that it's sometimes hard to buy. You've got to figure out what you need. got to research the best quote. got to hope you're dealing with a reputable company. It's not a good way to shop for anything. So Policy Genius made the whole process a lot easier. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. It takes just two minutes to get a quote. And if you don't know the first thing about insurance, they got all the tools to get you up to speed. Over 4 million people have used Policy Genius to shop for insurance. And they don't make just life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, home insurance, and auto insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, start your search at policygenius.com. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. There's apparently been a six-year effort to unionize the car washes, and that figures into your video. And incidentally, we also see Governor Cuomo talking about what we're going to do to improve these people's lives. And you've got brilliantly spliced throughout the video little excerpts from his speeches where he's talking about justice and fairness. But this is interspersed throughout stories of actual individuals who stand to be harmed by these policies. And it it really, really helps to show how empty the political rhetoric is. But let's talk about the unionization, because, of course, unions in general in the U.S. have been very much on the decline for a long time. They do play a major role in this story. And yet, what can we say about that six-year effort to unionize the car washes? I mean, unionizing car washes, I'll give them that. It's quite difficult. These are small businesses scattered around the city. Um, But in 2012, they made a go out of it. They said, you know, the stories you read in the press were, you know, oh, they, you know, they're paid a few dollars a day. They work 70 hours a week. That these, you know, this is really where we're needed in these, uh, to help and save these low wage workers. It's been heavily covered when the, when the campaign started. The New York Times covered it. The Daily News has covered it. I've always gotten annoyed by the, the coverage you know, where they casually use phrases like wage theft to describe when a car wash owner is paying a worker below the minimum wage, they use the word theft, which of course is just a mutually agreed upon price between two people. Anyway, the other thing that you're reading in these stories is you're always reading about the car washes. Oh, another car wash is unionized, another car wash is unionized. So the reporting, you know, it's like reading the, the birth announcements without reading the obituaries. So I took a close look at what was actually happening with the union campaign, and it's actually been a complete failure. So they unionized 11 car washes total. Two of those car washes have since closed down. Three more 
the union perceived that the workers were going to vote the union out. And so the union withdrew voluntarily because it would be embarrassing. So then that brings the number down to six. Then I report on another car wash in Queens where there it's unclear, but it seems like there's a groundswell among the workers against the union. That may drop out as well. And then in two years, when other contracts come out, you may find other workers who are just basically say the union comes, it collects its dues, and it really doesn't do anything for us. So this is, of course, it's never reported on because, again, the Times and the Daily News, and they approach the topic with this bias of evil bosses and exploited workers. It's cartoonish. And the facts don't align. So what then for the casual observer is the lesson of this particular episode and what does it portend for New York's future? I think I'll take the second question first. What it portends for the city's future is that we're moving more and more of these service low-wage industries into the black markets. So that has some consequences and it gives politicians more power because they can be targeted. And it's uh, it has the opposite effect. I mean, New York's politics, its labor enforcement have been a nightmare for a long time. So I think it's really just more of the same. I think there will still be hand washes. I don't think that all of these jobs are going to disappear. And that's because also politicians they don't really want massive across-the-board enforcement of the minimum wage. They want to talk about it at a press conference, but they will hear from constituents in immigrant communities if, you know, they start really cracking down on people. And again, these are these are like often hand-to-mouth businesses. The optics aren't always good um, when you actually enforce these rules. So that's on one hand. And then what the lessons are is really that for the most part, Low-wage workers should be negotiating their compensation with their employers, and we don't need a third party getting involved, and they will be better off. And if we want to make them even better off, the right policy is to lower barriers to entry, make it easy for that guy to open a hand wash on the corner. And that's what's going to benefit the workers most of all, because it's going to create new opportunities, and it's going to drive the bad operators out of business faster. And meanwhile, again, strewn throughout this video are, again, in particular, uh, Governor Cuomo, remarks from him that make it sound as if, well, what we have here are people who don't earn as much as we'd like them to earn, and that's an injustice. So we're going to fight that injustice by forcing other people to pay them more, and this will solve the problem. So we'll pass a law that will make them earn more money. And it's just assumed that all right-thinking people would agree that there's perfectly sound logic in this. And meanwhile, you're showing that there's another side to this story, but it's a side that's just not acknowledged. We just wish reality into existence, it seems. Yeah, I mean, Cuomo, of course, the governor of New York is a complete opportunist. He'll just, you know, his his only interest seemingly is Cuomo. There are other politicians in it as well. I don't talk as much about another politician, a Brooklyn city council member who was likely going to run for mayor named Brad Lander, who was one of the, I opened the video with a, a big protest in front of a car wash where there were two city council members, Brad Lander and Carlos Menchaca, who are actually arrested in front of this car wash in support of the workers. And then 
And Lander wrote a blog post, I, I think the next day, why I was arrested. And it's just the most preening. It's all about Lander. It's like, I stood up for the, for the workers because I, in solidarity of their cause, and I believe that the ripple effects of what we did of course, you know, he was just put in cuffs, probably released 10 minutes late. The idea that he made some big sacrifice, it was just the optics of it. So anyway, that was a car wash called Vegas Auto Spots in Parksville, Brooklyn. Um, and how I closed my video is actually looking at what happened to Vegas Auto Spa, which is that, you know, as soon as the union came, there was a labor lawsuit. This affiliated group called New York Communities for Change went to the owner's house and rioted and scared his kids. They printed out a page from his wife's Facebook page where she's dressed in a Halloween costume and they put it all over the neighborhood. They really went after this guy. And he he was immediately looking for an exit. He sold it to some guy who didn't know what he's doing. That guy went out of business is the upshot. So today, Vegas Auto Spa is like a garbage dump and there's nobody there. And of course, you know, so back three years ago, this rally where uh, all these politicians are getting arrested made local press, but no one's talking about what happened. What's, what, what's the real world impact of that rally? What are the real ripple effects, as Brad Lander put it? Yeah, and that is what, if we had the kind of journalism we ought to have, that would be the kind of story we would read. But instead, we get the feel-good story about the rally, and then the next day there's something else. And because Again, because it's assumed that our good intentions automatically translate into the policy outcomes we prefer. That's just an, an assumption of the worldview. So there really isn't a reason to follow up because what downside could there be? I mean, it, now I realize with somebody like Cuomo, it's just, that you're right, he's an opportunist. It's hard for me to really believe that somebody of his intelligence, I mean, I'm not saying he's the smartest guy in the world, but he's not an idiot, actually believes everything he says. Like, does he think that people will be less poor if we basically take away their options, which is what this usually amounts to? This job isn't paying them enough, so we'll force it to pay them more. But it usually means they don't have that job anymore. But looking at their entire array of choices, that was the thing they chose. So right. in, pr in practice, you're taking away their choice, and yet you're telling us that's going to improve their condition. Uh, something screwy about this. In fact, I even had – I gave a talk once where at the end, a former Bush Labor Department official said to me – because I was talking about the Catholic bishops who were just hopeless on economics. And he said to me, I find it impossible to believe that those people are people of goodwill. That's the one thing that's impossible. What the only possible explanation is that they know darn well that they're impoverishing people and that this just makes them easier to control. And I, I just – I'm not even sure even I can be cynical enough to go quite that far. I wonder what you think. Well, I think it's a mix. I mean, I, I do think you have true believers um, who are um, – it, it's hard to say. You have people – you have opportunists, you have true believers, and then you have people um, who – for example, I wrote another article where, as part of it, um, Scott Stringer, another local politician, I have a source saying that he was telling a group of Korean business owners, don't worry, we're not really going to enforce the $15 minimum wage in thinly veiled language. So to some degree, they're aware that enforcement is weak. So so it's like a best of both worlds from their view. They get to, you know, please the powerful labor lobbies in the in the city, which help them get elected. And at the same time, um, you know, the, the businesses get to keep running. So there's some of that. But to what you were saying earlier, the simple concept of trade-offs never enters into the picture when they look at these questions. So you're wor working at scrubbing cars all day at a car wash is not it's not a great job. It's not a great way to make. But what what's the alternative? And where does that guy end up when that car wash closes down? And that's the question they never address. 
Indeed. So I want people to watch your your video. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash twelve sixty six. So you should definitely watch. And then how do they make sure they get to see future Jim Epstein installments? Uh, well, they can subscribe to uh, Reason TV, uh, our YouTube channel, where you can also catch a recent interview with Tom Woods. How about that? Um, yeah, and uh, that's probably the best way. Come subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, follow Reason on Facebook, uh, like us on Facebook, because um, we usually post about a video every day or so. Um, and and that's the place to go. Okay, I will link to those things at tomwoods.com slash 1266. And thanks, Jim, and say hi to Gene. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, remember, I am right now on the Contra Cruise, the cruise I host every year with Bob Murphy, named after our joint podcast, Contra Krugman, where we refute a Paul Krugman New York Times column every week, and we have a ton of fun doing it. If you haven't checked it out yet, head over to ContraKrugman.com and enjoy. It is so much fun, and you'll learn an awful lot about economics while you're enjoying yourself. So ContraKrugman.com is where to find that. We'll be making an announcement about the next Contra Cruise, the Contra Cruise for 2019, in the coming days. So listen for that, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.